0: Hi, I'm retired New York City Police Detective Vic Ferrari, and welcome to NYPD Through the Looking Glass podcast, where you'll get unique insight into the New York City Police Department. Before we get started, please check out my Amazon author page, where you'll find my series of behind the scenes NYPD books for $10 paperback and $2.99 ebook download, including NYPD Through the Looking Glass Stories from Inside America's Largest Police Department. Fooled you, didn't you? Um, I, this week I'm going to talk about cop movies from the 1970s and 1980s. So grab a pen because if you're, I know a lot of people listen to this podcast in other countries, and a lot of people might may not have heard of these movies. So grab a pen and paper. Uh, I'll start that th- that in a little bit, but first we'll we'll go to the segment which is current events in New York City. So again, I go to the New York Post, I pull stories up, and I just kind of expouse on them a little bit. So the first one that caught my attention this week is uh, NYPD, he was NYPD. New York City Mayor Eric Adams keeps at least four changes of clothes in his SUV for photographers, source reveals. Well, what's funny is now Al Sharpton is calling the wardrobe criticism racist. Uh, listen, Adams is a well-dressed guy. I'm not a fan of his, but if he wants to drive around with four or five suits in his truck, nothing I would do. Matter of fact, I don't own four or five suits, but I get it. He's a public figure. He wants to look good for a press conference. He's entitled to it. But here's the thing, including myself. Once you put yourself out there, you become an elected official, podcast host, You're putting yourself in play, and people are going to like you, dislike you, criticize you, and they're going to break your balls, especially in New York. So Eric Adams is catching heat for four suits in his SUV. I don't really think it's a problem, but apparently the New York Post broke his balls about it, and now Sharpton says it's racist. What else is new? Second story I want to get to, and this is sad, and again, here comes the New York State parole board again. You've got a two-time killer. The guy's name is Vincent DeRosa. And at one time, he was known as the Butcher of Belrose. And many years ago, he killed a four-year-old girl when he was 16 years old, went to jail, or he was institutionalized. He got out, and then he killed an 18-year-old Finnish exchange student named Tomi Utu, and buried him in a shallow grave in 1983. So obviously, this guy is not right. He's killed two people, and... Fifteen years later, he, 15 years early, he had lured his neighbor, little Teresa Riccio, from her stoop, slaughtered her and stuffed her in a suitcase. So now this guy is going to get out. The New York State Parole Board has approved him getting out. I don't get it. Um, Again, I think whoever they parole should live in their neighborhood and let them see how they like it. And I I think this crap would stop real fast. So, again, here comes the New York State parole board letting out another person who's got no business roaming the streets with us. Next story that jumps out at me. New York City migrant (laughs) accused of fatally stabbing fellow asylum seeker caught on camera. Okay, so first of all, they're not New York City migrants, and most of them are not asylum seekers. They're illegal aliens. They crossed over. For whatever reason, our country's allowing them in. And bad things are going to happen because we're not vetting what's going on. And it says a suspected st- stabber of accused, the suspected stabber accused of killing a fellow migrant over a woman at Randall's Island Tent City was captured on camera. So this sounds like that scene, the opening scene in Scarface, when Rebanga comes over from Cuba and uh, Manny and uh, Scarface. Tony Montana get the contract to kill the guy. You know, they're in the tent. They're burning there. Viva car, viva car. And then they, they stab him. Oh, And he stabs him. So these two illegal aliens are in a tent city on Randall's Island. And um, they, they got into an argument over a woman, probably another asylum seeker. And one guy killed the other guy. So now he'll spend the rest of his life in jail. Oh, no, he won't. New York State parole board will let him out in a couple of years. It's the funny thing about Randall's Island, and a lot of people don't know about this. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere in New York. So if you've ever been in New York City and you go into Manhattan or Queens or the Bronx, you have the Triborough Bridge, right? It's called Triborough because it connects three different boroughs. And beneath it, you've got this godforsaken area down there. And the last scene in the movie, The French Connection, which we're going to get to in a couple of minutes, was filmed there. It's a lot of old buildings, and I mean, they've done a lot of work to it. They've made it soccer fields now and softball fields, but it's kind of a pain in the ass to get to. It's kind of in the middle of a no-man's land. And actually, on that facility, I'm almost positive they have a hospital there. It's that tall building with bars on the window that's, um, I think it's a state facility for the criminally insane. I'm not sure, but I think that's what that's there for. Um, back in the day, in, uh, up until I think the early 90s, our undercover street crime unit, which was a, a citywide unit of uh, really sharp cops and detectives dressed up in plain clothes and used taxi cabs and the decoy unit. And they'd go around the five boroughs and they, were in, they turned out of Randall's Island. So it's in the middle of nowhere. So that kind of makes sense where they would put all these illegal aliens because this way no one lives there. So they wouldn't be bothering anybody. But the funny thing about Randall's Island is there's this bridge If you ever took the FDR drive, there's a walkway bridge that could, it's actually a draw, not a drawbridge, but a section of it goes up so you can't go over at all times. There was a homeless center there for years. And in the early 90s, when I worked in the Manhattan North Narcotics Division, we would do buy and bust. And a lot of times we would have our undercovers hang out on that little bridge that goes over the FDR drive and buy off the homeless people. I mean, they're supposed to be living in this homeless center getting up, getting back on their feet and they're selling drugs to our undercovers. So I I do know a little bit about that area. And again, it's in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing around and finally last but not least story is a barefoot man was found hanged inside a subway tunnel near grand central station in apparent suicide and it says the unidentified man was found hanging by the neck by a wire about 100 feet into the number seven train tunnel south of the busy transit hub at about 5 15 a.m the thing about the subway and i i had a guy on here a couple of weeks ago uh, mike de who was a retired uh transit detective transit's an odd thing man i mean there's just so much going on in those tunnels i mean you have rodents the size of cats running around down there and you have a lot of homeless people that that are down there they live there or they commit crimes and they go down there and hide for a while no place i'd want to go i think i mentioned on this podcast i had a a day-long training session where they kind of gave us the rundown of what's down there and then they took us into a subway tunnel and. I, I don't remember exactly how many feet, but let's just say for argument's sake, like every hundred feet, there's these little alcove cutouts where you can kind of go in so you don't get hit by the train when it comes. Also in there, there's um, every certain amount of feet, you'll see a blue light, if the homeless people haven't broken the light or the light didn't burn out. And next to that blue light is a telephone. And that fellow telephone goes to, I guess, the central command. And you pick up that phone, it's like the bat phone, it rings and you can you, you identify yourself, and they can shut the power off from station to station. But it's only good for about 10 or 15 minutes, and if you don't get back on that phone, guess what? They're throwing the switch, the power's coming back on, and good luck if a train is coming. So again, there's a lot of nasty things that go on in the New York City subway system. If you're down there, if you, if you're, if you go to New York, I hear a lot of people, oh, I wanna, I wanna ride the subway, and do yourself a favor. If you're gonna ride the subway, do not look into the tunnel. You're just asking to get pushed into the, into, into, onto the tracks by, by a homeless person or, or an EDP, emotionally disturbed person. You want to take the subway fine. The train's going to come through that tunnel eventually. Always try to keep your back against a wall or an L-pillar so no one can sneak up from behind you and push you or, or, or accost you. So just, you know, have your head on a swivel if you're going to ride the train, especially in New York these days. So today we're going to talk about movies from the 70s and 80s, cop movies that were very influential in my life. Um, I mean, first and foremost, Dirty Harry. It didn't take place in New York. But I remember as a kid watching those films and saying to myself, wow, like, cops can really do these things? And it's kind of an eye open as soon as you go into the police academy. And the first thing they tell you is, no, you can't do those things. So the first film is the 1971 classic, The French Connection. Starred Gene, uh, Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider. The movie is about a couple of detectives that broke the French connection, which was a pipeline of heroin that was coming into New York and into the United States from France. Um, the case actually was done by uh, legendary NYPD detectives Eddie Egan and Sonny Grasso before he, he died. Um, they, they were narcotics back then, they had a lot more leeway. And they they realized that the mob was involved in this. They were purchasing the drugs that was coming into New York, according to the movie, in vehicles. And once the car came into the United States, they would whack up the heroin and distribute it. There's a there's probably one of the best chase scenes of all time in that movie, between uh, Gene Hackman in, in a car chasing an above uh, above above subway car on. Um, on on an L pillar going through Brooklyn, I highly recommend the movie. It's one of my all time favorites. And the best thing about The French Connection is at the end of the movie, no one's happy. Nowadays, you know, in the movies, the good guy always wins, or you know, it's the end of the movie. They may, they they bust the case, but the bad guy, the main character, gets away. They get reassigned. No one's really happy, and that, that really happens quite a bit. There's a lot of bad blood when you take down a case. I don't want to, you know, ruin the movie for you guys, but I highly recommend renting or streaming The French Connection by William Freakin. Now, they kind of made a sequel to The French Connection. This is another movie. This is actually one of my all-time favorites too, the 1973 classic The Seven Ups. And the Seven Ups is based on a true story you had a gang of Irishmen from supposedly the Westies, which was an Irish gang in the the Hell's Kitchen section of Manhattan. And they came up with the idea was they were going to kidnap wise guys, you know, mafia types, and hold them for ransom because they knew there was cash. They they would get paid in cash. And they also knew the mob wasn't going to run to the cops. And they were kidnapping guys for a while. And then what happened was they kidnapped Don Carlo Gambino's uh, nephew, Manny Gambino. And something happened. There's were, and they were afraid once he was released, he would go and rat them out. They killed him. And what wound up happening is John Gotti, Angelo Ruggiero, and this guy Gallione were given the contract to go and kill these these Irishmen that had the audacity to kidnap Don Carlo's uh, nephew. But the movie kind of parallels that because the opening scene in the movie is you've got guys... Kidnapping people and then there's there's an exchange of money. But what, what's going on in the 7-Ups in is you've got the cops. There's, there's three fra- factions going on. You have the mob wondering who's kidnapping their guys. You have the cops who kind of know what's going on but they really don't. And then you have the bad guys that are running around kidnapping these mob guys. It's a really good movie. It's filmed in the Bronx, Manhattan and Brooklyn. It's got that 1970s grit to it. There's another that that movie actually, the car chase scene in that movie, I, I think is better than the French Connection. It's a great movie. You can get it on um, you can get it's it's probably on Netflix, it's probably definitely on Amazon Prime. I mean, I know a lot of the people listen to this podcast live overseas, but see, check out the Seven Ups. It's a really good movie. And that's another one of those movies where at the end no one's really happy. And the music score is excellent in it, just like the French Connection. Then another cop movie that I really enjoyed, I think it came out in 1974, it's called Cops and Robbers, and it's with Joe Bologna and Cliff Gorman, and the funny thing is, like, how life imitates art, because years later, you had the mafia cops in Brooklyn, I'll explain, so in the movie Cops and Robbers, you have a patrolman, working in a precinct, just a street cop, and his buddy is a detective, and they carpool back and forth, and they're in their late 30s, and they're talking about retirement, and do I have enough money to retire? And they come up with the bright idea that, you know, you know we're cops, we have badges, we, we know the city, we have access to things, we could pull off a score and then retire. So what they wind up doing is they, they hook up with a mob, with a mob uh, capo, who, who I, who calls himself O'Neill, which is ironic because the underboss of the Gambino crime family was this guy, Aniello della Croce, who's, who used to give the name O'Neill when he was arrested. So I'm guessing that's where they got it from. So anyway, these two cops hook up with this mobster and he tells them, I'll tell you what, you guys want to make money? Bear bonds. What I need you guys to do is steal bear bonds and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a good price on it. So what these two cops do is they rip off, uh, a, a stockbroker exchange during um, a ticker tape parade for the astronauts. And I don't want to blow it, but then there's, a, there's an exchange with the mob that goes bad in Central Park. And then there's another car chase in it. And the funny thing at the end of that movie is, and I saw that in A Little Boy and I was fascinated with it, the end of that movie, there's a car chase through Central Park with a police car, and it crashes through the gate of the Central Park precinct. And I remember as a little boy on either East... Um, Either fuel week break or Christmas break. My mother used to take my brother and I into the city to catch a show or see the lights down at um, um, Rockefeller Plaza. I begged my mother. And Central Park was rough back then. Like, there's a 50-50 chance back in the 70s that you were going to get robbed going into Central Park. And I begged my mother and she took my, you know, we were little. We were holding her hand. I was probably about eight years old. My mother brought my brother and I into Central Park to see the police station where the police car had crashed through the gate. So, that's another good movie. Check it out. It's called Cops and Robbers with Joe Bologna and Cliff Gorman. Another good NYPD movie. This is actually pretty funny. It was called Fort Apache, the Bronx, starring Paul Newman and Ken Wall, Ed Asner, Rachel Tinton. It's filmed... So, the movie is supposed to be about the 4-1 precinct in the South Bronx, and they called it Fort Apache back in the day. But by the time they went to film this movie, which was probably about 80 or 81... It was all burnt out. They used to call Fort Apache Little House on the Prairie. So what they wound up doing was filming the movie in the 4-2 precinct, which was my station house. Now I came along later, and I was just fascinated. I couldn't believe I'm in this building where one of my favorite movies is in. And basically, that movie shows about this police corruption, a lot of drugs. It shows the South Bronx the way it was when, when I got hired and before. A lot of abandoned buildings, a lot of street talk. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating take. It's like a snapshot of the, of the 1980s. Now, the funny thing is there was a kid in, in uh, my freshman year of high school and he cut out of school to be a, to be an extra in the riot scene in the movie. And he had red hair. And the funny thing is like we spotted him. So check out that movie Fort Apache, the Bronx, another eighties film that a lot of people don't know about. And I'm surprised why, cause Stallone is in it called Nighthawks, and it's about the NYPD street crime unit, which they used to do decoy stuff, and that movie takes place all around New York. They don't actually show Randall's Island, but the wild thing about that movie is they show a couple of, like, busts in the city, but if you've ever been to New York City and you take the FDR drive, there's a tram. It's called the Roosevelt Island Tram, and it's like a a ski lift, and it takes you from uh, right about uh, the 59th Street Bridge... And it takes you over the Harlem River. And there's an island between Queens and Manhattan. It's called Roosevelt Island. And like in the 1800s, it was called Blackwell Island. And back then, they used it as a sanitarium. They used to put people there that were sick uh, with typhoid fever and disease when they used to quarantine people. And the funny thing is, Typhoid Mary, who's actually buried in my neighborhood, what she would do is... She would, she would, she was like a, a nanny and a cook, but she was like resistant. She, she, she wouldn't get typhoid. Like she had typhoid, she was a carrier. So what would happen was she start working for a family. Half the family would die. They would realize it was her. They'd put her in a sanitarium. She'd swear on a stack of Bibles. No, no, no. I'm never going to work for anybody again. I'm going to live a quiet life. And then before you know it, there'd be another outbreak of typhoid. So typhoid Mary died on that island. So anyway, I guess the late 1960s, 70s. They built low-income housing and I guess regular housing too was on that island. There's a couple of hospitals there. Nobody really knows. I mean, I've been there a couple of times. It's an odd place. It's kind of like, kind of reminds me of Co-op City in a way. But anyway, the movie is about Stallone and Billy D. Williams. They're street crime cops and there's this terrorist by the name of Wolfgar. It's uh, the late Rutger Hauer. He decides he's going to kidnap and hold hostage people in this tram over the East River. And it's a really good movie. There's a lot of action in it. I mean, again, like most cop movies, it's unrealistic. But it's a really good movie. So check out, I think it's the 1980s movie. Oh, and the $6 million woman's in it, but she doesn't do like anything athletic. So check out Nighthawks. Uh, I'm not crazy. The reason I'm looking up is because I have these movie posters above. You can't see it. Another good movie, I think about 73, 74, is the movie Super Cops. And that's about, there were two NYPD cops and then became detectives in the late 60s, early 70s, by the name of um, Greenberg and Hans. And they were kind of, the department didn't really like what they were doing because they were wearing sneakers. They would go into plain clothes while they, was, while they were supposed to be in uniform and make all these arrests. They brought a lot of attention to themselves. And they made hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of arrests. So Hollywood decided to make a movie about him and it's called The Super Cops and it's with Ron Liebman and uh, David Selsby. That's another great movie. It takes place. It's filmed all over bombed out Brooklyn. There's a lot of drugs in it. A lot of good car... um, No, there's not a good car change but a lot of foot chases in the movie. And it's kind of a light take and it's a very funny movie um, for for a cop movie. So I I definitely highly recommend checking that one out. And okay, one more. So... One of my all-time favorites is with Walter Matthau and the late great Jerry Stiller, who played Frank Costanza in Seinfeld. It's called The Taking of Pelham One, Two, Three. It's funny. I really don't like Hollywood remakes. It's just such a lazy. I don't know. I've watched one or two remakes in my life, and I'm like, why? Why would you do this? And they don't even bring back the original cast. But The Taking of Pelham One, Two, Three is a great movie. It's about a bunch of guys that that. Um, basically rob and kidnap a subway train. And they hold it hostage underground. How to make the train drive without someone holding the dead man's brake in it. It's an excellent movie. The late Robert Shore is in it. He was um, Quint, the the ship captain in Jaws. Um, That guy Hector Olazio was one of the bad guys in it. Uh, Who's the guy? Wilson, the guy uh, that was in uh, Home Improvement, he's one of the bad guys in it. And the late Martin Balsam, they're the kidnappers. And it's a great movie. It just shows how, how rough the subway was, complete with graffiti. You can almost smell the stale air. That's how good this movie is. So not the remake, but just check out Taking of Pelham 123, the original movie, not, not the remake. And I'm looking above my wall to see if there's anything else. Yeah, of course, Dirty Harry. Oh, here's another one. This doesn't take place in New York, but the same director that made, um, The French connection, William Freakin. It's an underrated movie. It's called um, To Live and Die in LA. And it's a really good movie. It's about two secret service agent, two secret service agents doing counterfeit. And Willem Dafoe plays this um, counterfeit. He's like an artist. He does jail time for a bank robbery. He gets into counterfeiting. That's got one of the best. Car chase scenes of all time in it as well. I think it came out in 1985. But the great thing about To Live and Die in L.A., and I, I do a lot of research. I read up on these movies and how they were made. And I watch countless interviews on YouTube. The opening scene of that movie, they basically show you how to counterfeit money the way it was done back in the old days. And you see William Defoe; he's got this machine where he burns... These uh, engravings on a plate, and then how he mixes the paint, and then how he makes the money, and then he takes the money and he throws it with poker chips in a, in a dryer to kind of wear it down. Very technically well done movie. I mean, the ending is kind of come on, give me a break. But it's it's if you're you know if you like action movies, you know the thing is with Hollywood nowadays they're not realistic. Like in the old days, the bad guys got a thirty eight or maybe a nine millimeter. You know, he's not running around with a bazooka. He's not wrecking 150 cars. You know, like I like the Blues Brothers, but I mean, not all police movies should be like the end of the Blues Brothers, where 450 police cars get wrecked and the explosions. And nowadays with this CGI crap, I just personally, for me, find a lot of these films to be unwatchable. So check out *To Live and Die in L.A.* Check out my movies. And let me know what you think. I mean, you know, just hit me up and say, oh, that movie sucked or I really enjoyed that movie. I want to see if anyone's listening to me out there. So that brings us to this week's uh, portion of the show, Vic's Picks. And I was, again, I'm not a a Vegas handicapper. You don't have to listen to me. But this week, I'm going to take Houston and give nine against the Ravens. I think the Ravens are flat. They've been sitting around for a week and I think Houston is hot. I'm gonna go with San Francisco and and give nine to the Packers. I think San Francisco is this just juggernaut. There's just too low, too much talent on that team for the Packers. Buffalo. I'm gonna give two and a half to the Chiefs. I'm over Taylor Swift and her meathead boyfriend. Oh, I, I just can't take it. I mean, I get it. It's a cute story. She's dating Travis Kelsey and whatever. But I mean, come on. I, I mean, it's enough already, right? Um, I'm going to take the Lions and I'm going to give six and a half to the, over to the Buccaneers. I think the Lions are hot. I think the only thing standing in the Lions way is going to be San Francisco, but yeah, I'm going to go with the Lions and give six and a half to the Bucks. And as always, I want to thank everyone for tuning in, especially with my listeners in Florissant, Missouri, Newport, Ritchie, Florida, Ogden, Utah. Now Ogden, Utah is home to one of my favorite actors. And his name is... Already, he's, he just recently died. His name was R.D. Call. And he was a great character actor. And he would pop up in a lot of Sean Penn films. Oh, this is a really good... I mean, it's not a cop movie, but it's a good crime movie. And it's based on a true story. It's called At Close Range with Sean Penn. It's got all these great character actors in it. It's got R.D. Call. It's got uh, Paul Herman in it. Um, uh, David Strahan is in it. Uh... What's the name of that chick that was in American Graffiti? Candy Clark is in it. It's, it's based on a true story. Um, in the 60s and 70s, you had these guys from Tennessee, the Johnson brothers. And they settled in this area where Pennsylvania, Maryland, and New Jersey kind of, there's a border there. And what these brothers did was they stole farm equipment. They stole tractors. They stole all sorts of farming equipment. They also stole cars. They were big into stealing Corvettes. And law enforcement back then, they were stealing in multi-jurisdictions. You didn't have computers, so they were getting away with murder for years. And they were dangerous guys. And what made them really dangerous was they brought their kids and their kids' friends into the fold. They called them the Kitty gang. And the children were actually out stealing. Well, when they figured out that they were convening a grand jury to indict these guys and put them in jail, these brothers, the Johnson brothers, like three or four of them, Norman, Bruce, I can't think of the other one, um they decide the kids are going to be a loose link and they start killing them and burying them on the farms where they're stealing these tractors these tractors and farm equipment so the movie's called at close range it came out in 1986 it is based on a true story there's actually a really good book about it maybe one week i'll do um a segment because I'm, I'm a huge collector of true crime books i'll do a, a thing on, on true crime books but yeah check out Out close range and R.D. Cole was also in a great movie with um, the great Gary Oldman and Sean Penn called State of Grace. That's about the Westies on the west side of Manhattan in Hell's Kitchen. Really good movie. I highly recommend it. Uh, where else am I? Oh, and, uh, and thank you for those of you in Lakeland, Florida. Home to the man, the myth, the legend, Grady Judd. And if you work in law enforcement or have an interesting criminal background and would like to be a guest on the show, or if you'd like to advertise or have an opinion or comment, please drop me a note on Twitter or Instagram at VicFerrari50. And if you've enjoyed the content, please check out my Amazon author page. Type in my name, Vic Ferrari Like the Call, where you'll find all my my behind the scenes NYPD books, including NYPD Law and Disorder. And thank everyone I want to thank everyone for tuning in. And hopefully I'll see everybody next week. Have a good week, everybody. Bye-bye.